Chapter Six of Starborn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Starborn by Andre Norton. Chapter Six: Treasure Hunt. Raff, squatting on a small padded platform raised some six inches from the floor, tried to study the inhabitants of the room without staring offensively. At the first glance, in spite of their strange clothing and their odd habit of painting their faces with weird designs, the city people might have been of his own species. Until one saw their two slender hands with the three equal-length fingers and thumb, or caught a glimpse, under the elaborate head-coverings, of the stiff, spiky substance which served them for hair at least they did not appear to be antagonistic. When they had reached the rooftop where the Terrans had landed their flitter, they had come with empty hands, making gestures of good will and welcome, and they had had no difficulty in persuading at least three of the exploring party to accompany them to their own quarters, though Raff had been separated from the flyer only by the direct order of Captain Hobart, an order he still resented and wanted to disobey. The Terrans had been offered refreshment, food and drink, but knowing the first rule of stellar exploration they had refused, which did not mean that the host must abstain. In fact, Raff thought, watching the aliens about him, they ate as if such a feast were novel. His two neighbors had quickly divided his portion between them, and made it disappear as fast, if not faster, than their own small servings. At the other end of the room Lablet and Hobart were trying to communicate with the nobles about them, while Suriki, a small palm recorder in his hand, was making a tape-strip of the proceedings. Raff glanced from one of his neighbors to the other. The one on his right had chosen to wear a sight-torturing shade of crimson, and the material was wound in strips about his body as if he were engulfed in an endless bandage. Only his fluttering hands, his three-toed feet and his head were free of the supple rolls. Having selected red for his clothing, he had picked a brilliant yellow paint for his facial make-up, and it was difficult for the uninitiated to trace what must be his normal features under that thick coating of stuff which fashioned a mask-like strip across his eyes, and a series of circles outlining his mouth, circles which almost completely covered his beardless cheeks. More twists of woven fabric, opalescent and changing color as his head moved, made a turban for his head. Most of the aliens about the room wore some variation of the same bandage dress, face paint, and turban. An exception, one of three such, was the feaster on Raff's left. His face paint was confined to a conservative set of bars on each cheek, those a stark black and white. His sinewy arms were bare to the shoulder, and he wore a shell of some metallic substance as a breast and backplate, not unlike the very ancient body armor of Raff's own world. The rest of his body was covered by the bandage strips, but they were of a dead black, which, because of the natural thinness of his limbs, gave him a rather unpleasant resemblance to a spider. Various sheaths and pockets hung from a belt, pulled tight about his wasp middle, and a helmet of the metal covered his head. Soldier? 
Raff was sure that his guess was correct. The officer, if officer he was, caught Raff's gaze. His small round mouth gaped, and then his hands, with a few quick movements which Raff followed, fascinated, pantomimed a flyer in the air. With those talking fingers he was able to make plain a question. Was Raff the pilot of the flitter? The pilot nodded. Then he pointed to the officer, and forced as inquiring an expression as he could command. The answer was sketched quickly and readably. The alien, too, was either a pilot, or had some authority over flyers. For the first time since he had entered the building, Raff knew a slight degree of relaxation. The wrinkleless, too smooth skin of the alien was a darkish yellow. His painted face was a mask to frighten any sensible Terran child. His general appearance was not attractive. But he was a flyer, and he wanted to talk shop, as well as they could with no common speech. Since the scarlet-wound nobleman on Raff's right was completely engrossed in the feast, pursuing a few scraps avidly about the dish, the Terran gave all his attention to the officer. Twittering words poured in a stream from the warrior's lips. Raff shook his head regretfully, and the other jerked his shoulders in almost human impatience. Somehow that heartened Raff. With many guesses to cover gaps, probably more than half of which were wrong, Raff gathered that the officer was one of a very few who still retained the almost forgotten knowledge of how to pilot the remaining airworthy craft in this crumbling city. On their way to the building with the curved roof, Raff had noted the evidences that the inhabitants of this metropolis could not be reckoned as more than a handful, and that most of these now lived either within the central building or close to it. A pitiful collection of survivors lingering on in the ruins of their past greatness. Yet he was impressed now by no feeling that the officer, eagerly trying to make contact, was a degenerate member of a dying race. In fact, as Raff glanced at the aliens about the room, he was conscious of an alertness, of a suppressed energy which suggested a young and vigorous people. The officer was now urging him to go some place, and Raff, his dislike for being in the heart of the stranger's territory once more aroused, was about to shake his head in a firm negative when a second idea stopped him. He had resisted separation from the flitter. Perhaps he could persuade the alien, under the excuse of inspecting a strange machine, to take him back to the flyer. Once there he would stay. He did not know what Captain Hobart and Lablet thought they could accomplish here. But as for himself, Raff was sure that he was not going to feel easy again until he was across the northern mountain chain and coming in for a landing close by the RS-10. It was as if the alien officer had read his thoughts, for the warrior uncrossed his black legs and got nimbly to his feet with a lithe movement, which Raff, cramped by sitting in the unfamiliar posture, could not emulate. No one appeared to notice their withdrawal and when Raff hesitated, trying to catch Hobart's eye and make some explanation, the alien touched his arm lightly and motioned toward one of the curtained doorways. Conscious that he could not withdraw from the venture now, Raff reluctantly went out. They were in a hall where bold bands of color interwoven patterns impossible for Terran eyes to study. 
Raff lowered his gaze hurriedly to the gray floor under his boots. He had discovered earlier that to try to trace any thread of that wild splashing did weird things to his eyesight, and awakened inside him a sick panic. His space boots, with the metal, magnetic plates set in the soles, clicked loudly on the pavement where his companion's bare feet made no whisper of sound. The hall gave upon a ramp leading down, and Raff recognized this. His confidence arose. They were on their way out of the building. Here the murals were missing so that he could look about him for reference points. He was sure that the banquet hall was some ten stories above street level, but they did not go down ten ramps now. At the foot of the third the officer turned abruptly to the left, beckoning Raff along. When the Terran remained stubbornly where he was, pointing in the direction which, to him, meant return to the flitter, the other made gestures describing an aircraft in flight, his own probably. Raff sighed. He could see no way out unless he cut and ran, and long before he reached the street from this warren they could pick him up. Also, in spite of all the precautions he had taken to memorize their way here, he was not sure he could find his path back to the flyer, even if he were free to go. Giving in, he went after the officer. Their way led out on one of the spider-web bridges which tied building and tower into the complicated web which was the city. Raff, as a pilot of a flitter, had always believed that he had no fear of heights, but he discovered that to coast above the ground in a flyer was far different than to hurry at the pace his companion now set across one of these narrow bridges suspended high above the street, and he was sure that the surface under them vibrated, as if the slightest extra poundage would separate it from its supports, and send it and them crashing down. Luckily, the distance they had to cover was relatively short, but Raff swallowed a sigh of relief as they reached the door at the other end. They were now in a tower which, unluckily, proved to be only a way-station before another swing-out over empty space on a span which sloped down. Raff clutched at the guide-rail, the presence of which suggested that not all the users of this road were as nonchalant as the officer who tripped lightly ahead. This must explain the other's bare feet. On such paths they were infinitely safer than his own boots. The downward-sloping bridge brought them to a square building which somehow had an inhabited look, which those crowding around it lacked. Raff gained its door to become aware of a hum, a vibration in the wall he touched to steady himself, hinting at the drive of motors, the throb of machinery inside the structure. But within, the officer passed along a corridor to a ramp which brought them out, after what was for Raff a steep climb, upon the roof. Here was not one of the tongue-shaped craft such as had first met them in the city, but a gleaming globe. The officer stopped, his eyes moving from the Terran to the machine, as if inviting Raff to share in his own pride. To the pilot's mind it bore little resemblance to any form of aircraft past or present with which he had had experience in his own world but he did not doubt that it was the present acme of alien construction, and he was eager to see it perform. He followed the officer through a hatch at the bottom of the globe, only to be confronted by a ladder he thought at first he could not climb, 
for the steps were merely toe-holds made to accommodate the long, bare feet of the crew. By snapping on the magnetic power of his space boots, Raff was able to get up, although at a far slower speed than his guide. They passed several levels of cabins before coming out in what was clearly the control cabin of the craft. To Raff, the bank of unfamiliar levers and buttons had no meaning, but he paid strict attention to the gestures of his companion. This was not a spaceship, he gathered, and he doubted whether the aliens had ever lifted from their own planet to their neighbors in this solar system. But it was a long-range ship, with greater cruising power than the other flyer he had seen, and it was being readied now for a voyage of some length. The Terran pilot squatted down on the small stool before the controls. Before him a vision plate provided a clear view of the sky without, and the gathering clouds of evening. Raff shifted uncomfortably. That signal of the passing of time triggered his impatience to be away, back to the RS-10. He did not want to spend the night in this city. Somehow he must get the officer to take him back to the flitter. To be there would be better than shut up in one of the alien dwellings. Meanwhile he studied the scene on the vision plate, trying to find the roof on which they had left the flitter, but there was no point he was able to recognize. Raff turned to the officer and tried to make clear the idea of returning to his own ship. Either he was not as clever at the sign language as the other, or the alien did not wish to understand. For when they left the control cabin, it was only to make an inspection tour of the other parts of the globe, including the space which held the motors of the craft, and which, at another time, would have kept Raff fascinated for hours. In the end, the Terran broke away and climbed down the thread of ladder to stand on the roof under the twilight sky. Slowly he walked about the broad expanse of the platform, attempting to pick out some landmark. The central building of the city loomed high, and there were any number of towers about it. But which was the one that guarded the roof where the flitter rested? Raff's determination to get back to his ship was a driving force. The alien officer had watched him, and now a three-fingered hand was laid on Raff's sleeve, while its owner looked into Raff's face and mouthed a trilling question. Without much hope, the pilot sketched the set of gestures he had used before, and he was surprised when the other led the way down into the building. This time they did not go back to the bridge, which had brought them across the canyons of streets, but kept on down ramps within the building. There was a hum of activity in the place. Aliens, all in tight black wrappings and burnished metal breastplates, their faces barred with black and white paint went on errands through the halls, or labored at tasks Raff could not understand. It now seemed as if his guide were eager to get him away. It was when they reached the street level that the officer did pause by one door, beckoning Raff imperiously to join him. The Terran obeyed reluctantly, and was almost sick. He was staring down at a dead, very dead body. By the stained rags still clinging to it, it was one of the aliens, a noble, not one of the black-clad warriors. The gaping wounds which had almost torn the unfortunate apart were like nothing Raff had ever seen. With a guttural sound, which expressed his feelings as well as any words, 
the officer picked up from the floor a broken spear, the barbed head of which was dyed the same reddish-yellow as the blood still seeping from the torn body. Swinging the weapon so close to Raff that the Terran was forced to retreat a step or two to escape contact with the grisly relic, the officer burst into an impassioned speech. Then he went back to the gestures which were easier for the spaceman to understand. This was the work of a deadly enemy, Raff gathered, and such a fate awaited any of them who ventured beyond certain bounds of safety. Unless this enemy were destroyed, the city, life itself, was no longer theirs. Seeing those savage wounds which suggested that an insane fury had driven the attacker, Raff could believe that. But surely a primitive spear was no equal to the weapons his guide could command. When he tried to suggest that, the other shook his head as if despairing of making plain his real message, and again beckoned Raff to come with him. They were out on the littered street, heading away from the central building where the rest of the Terran party must still be, and Raff, seeing the lengthening shadows, the pools of dusk gathering, and remembering that spear could not resist glancing over his shoulder now and then. He wondered if the metallic click of his boot-soles on the pavement might not draw attention to them, attention they would not care to meet. His hand was on his stun-gun, but the officer gave no sign of being worried. He walked along with the assurance of one who has nothing to fear. Then Raff caught sight of a patch of color he had seen before and relaxed. They were on their way back to the flitter. He had come down this very street earlier, and he did not mind the long climb back, ramp by steep ramp, which brought him out at last beside the flyer. His relief was so great that he put out his hand to draw it along the sleek side of the craft as he might have caressed a well-loved pet. "'Kirby?' At Hobart's bark he stiffened. "'Yes, sir.' "'We camp here to-night.' "'I—' have to make some plans. Yes, sir. He agreed with that. To attempt passage of the mountains in the dark was a suicide mission which he would have refused. On the other hand, to his mind, they would sleep more soundly if they were out of the city. He speculated whether he dared suggest that they use the few remaining moments of twilight to head into the open and establish a camp somewhere in the countryside. The alien officer made some comment in his slurred speech, and faded away into the shadows. Raff saw that the others had already dragged out their blanket rolls, and were spreading them in the shelter of the flitter, while Soriki busied himself at the comm, sending back a message to the RS-10. "'Should not be too difficult to establish a common speech form,' Lablet was saying, as Raff climbed into the flitter to tug loose his own roll. Color and pitch both seem to carry meaning, but the basic pattern is there to study, and with the scanner to sort out those record strips. Did you adjust them, Soriki? They're all ready for you to push the button. If the scanner can read them, it will. I got all that speech the chief or king, or whatever he was, made just before we left. Good, very good. In the light of the portable lamp by Soriki's comm, Lablet settled down, plugged the scanner tubes in his ears, absently accepting a ration bar the captain handed him to chew on while he listened to the playback of the record the Comtech had made that afternoon. Hobart turned to Raff. 
You went off with that officer. What did he have to show you? The pilot described the globe and the body he had been shown, and then added what he had deduced from the sketchy explanations he had been given. The captain nodded. Yes, they have aircraft, have been using them, too. But I think that there is only one of the big ones. And they're fighting a war, all right. We didn't see the whole colony, but I'll wager that there are only a handful of them left. They're holed up here, and they need help, or the barbarians will finish them off. They talked a lot about that. Lablet pulled the earplugs from his ears. In the lamplight there was an excited expression on his face. "'You were entirely right, Captain. They were offering us a bargain there at the last. They are offering us the accumulated scientific knowledge of this world.' "'What?' Hobart sounded bewildered. "'Over there,' Lablet made a sweep with his arm which might indicate any point to the east, "'there is a storehouse of the original learning of their race. It's in the heart of the enemy country.' but the enemy as yet do not know of it. They've made two trips over to bring back material, and their ship can only go once more. They offer us an equal share if we'll make the next trip in their company and help them clean out the storage place. Hobart's answer was a whistle. There was an avid hunger on Lablet's lean face. No more potent bribe could have been devised to entice him. But Raff, remembering the spear-torn body, wondered. "'In the heart of the enemy country,' he repeated to himself. Lablet added another piece of information. "'After all, the enemy they face is only dangerous because of superior numbers. They are only animals.' "'Animals don't carry spears,' Raff protested. "'Experimental animals that escaped during a worldwide war generations ago,' reported the other. "'It seems that the species has evolved to a semi-intelligent level.' I must see them. Hobart was not to be hurried. We'll think it over, he decided. This needs a little time for consideration. End of chapter.